0: For five years, all I thought about was this city and the people that live in it and having grown up here, I was really absolutely motivated that I wanted as many people to see themselves reflected in those pages.
1: Welcome to Executive Realness, the show where we learn from the women behind the world's most innovative companies. This interview was recorded as part of a live Stackworld event. Don't forget to download the Stackworld app today, available on Android and iOS, and join a community of thousands of mission driven women. My guest today is a renowned name in the field of culture and fashion. Laura Weir is the new creative director of Selfridges London, launching the Yellow Pages and leading a team of over 120 people. Laura has held senior editorial positions at British Vogue and the Sunday Times and was editor-in-chief of the London Evening Standards weekly supplement ES Magazine. She sits on the British Fashion Council Press Committee, is a member of the BAFTA E Rising Star Jury Panel, and sits on the Royal Academy of the Arts Summer Committee. And actually, Laura consulted with us on the launch of the stack. In this episode, you can expect to learn how to navigate career changes, how to deal with rejection, and most importantly, how to get a team on side to your creative vision. Hope you enjoy. So I always start at the very beginning, Laura, which is when you were a little girl growing up, tell us where you grew up. Did you think that selfages, which I'm sure you might have heard of as a child, would be
0: something that you were working with? Never. I never, ever thought. I was born in Guy's Hospital in London. Um, I'm the child of two, oh, two very young parents. So they were like 22 when they had me. Both educators, so both just qualified teachers. So I grew up in a quite creative household, and I wanted to be a vet. I think most, like lots of young girls, want to want to be vets, right? Because we're nurturers. Um, And then I remember doing some work experience at a vet surgery and watching an alsatian being castrated, and thought this isn't for me. (laughs) Um, So after that I, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do um, my parents separated when I was 11 and my mum had a new boyfriend by the time I was 16 and he worked for the Guardian so he was a reporter at the Guardian newspaper and when it came to doing that work experience of 16 and you're at school and you have to do that week I didn't know where I wanted to go and my mum was like I'll oh, just go with him to work you know he'll take you to work and I just I couldn't have been kind of less interested I was like yeah sure and I walked into the Guardian newsroom and it changed my life. I was just like, this is where I need to be. Describe what it was like when you got through
1: the doors, because was it in the Clarkenwell location? It was in the
0: Clarkenwell location. It was, I think it was on the third or fourth floor, and he was an industrial correspondent. So he um, sat on a kind of desk with all, it's very male, like all men essentially, except for one other female reporter. And um I remember the energy of the room and I remembered the camaraderie of all the reporters. And I I remember thinking at the time, I want to be in that environment. I want to be working closely with people who are all working towards the same cause at pace. The thing that really set me alight was this energy and the frenetic pace and this deadline that was looming and you had to hit it. And I just I thought it was a buzz like that. That was the only way I could describe it. So I did it for a week and then I left. It was when the millennium bug was happening. Okay. Y2K. <laughs> Y2K. And um, so I got to go to a press conference. I mean, it's the most privileged uh, experience, essentially. I just felt incredibly lucky to be there. I think he was a bit like, oh, God, my new girlfriend's kids like knocking about. This is annoying. So after that, 16, I then I got the bug and I was like, I'm going to be a journalist. So what were the next steps that you took to follow that path? So, I applied to London College of Fashion because I thought I'd quite, I quite quite like fashion and clothes and I also want to write, so that would be a good way of combining the two, but I didn't get in. Um, they turned you down? They turned me what down. What course did you apply for? Uh, fashion Communication. Yeah. Was that your course? I no. did it at Central St. Yeah, Martin. Yeah, did it at Central. Um, yeah, they didn't let me in. I had a really um, unpleasant interview with a woman who will remain nameless, but she was, she said, if you're not the creme de la creme, then you should leave the room now. And I was like, oh God, uh." that obviously set me off on a bit of a uh, insecure start. And yeah, so I didn't get accepted there, but I did get accepted onto the journalism course. So the BA journalism, which was much more um, vocational. You did court reporting. It was much more my alley anyway. So I got accepted onto that did that for three years and then left and started my interning basically. Can I just go back to that decision because I feel like a lot of
1: people's first no's can be quite destabilizing. Was that your first
0: rejection career-wise? It was not only my first rejection, it was the first time in life where I had felt someone that I wanted to impress being intentionally mean like I'd had meanness in my life or I'd experienced troubling situations and some traumatic situations but never anyone intent on upset do you know what I mean saying something to intentionally make you feel bad I was just rocked by it I remember thinking my god that they didn't want me They they didn't want me and like that was a that was my first experience as you say of like a, a hard rejection. You're an incredible leader and that's something we'll talk about later, but
1: when I watch you how you talk to people and how you coach people, it's so positive and nurturing and I'm just thinking at 18 how did it change you?
0: Probably it probably subconsciously manifested an approach that was always about respect. So always about meeting someone and trying to tailor my approach to make them feel comfortable while at the same time as a leader making sure that you're bringing someone on the journey to get to the goal that you want to achieve with them. So like that I suppose built my approach and making sure that I I would never want anyone to you know leave an experience with me feeling like I felt after that experience. What's the biggest thing that you learned on your degree? The biggest thing I learned on my degree, aside from a whole new world, so it was, it had PPE as part of the qualification, which is politics, philosophy and economics, which is the Oxbridge bolt-on, basically. So It's what every prime minister has done as a degree, basically. Yeah, so it was incredibly foreign to me. Like I'd met, you know, I grew up in a very politicised household. Um, My parents were both very active politically, but... I'd never just studied philosophy, I didn't understand economics, I struggled with forming my thoughts and being able to play in that space, it just felt completely like a different language, so I think I learned how to navigate that and I also learned from my course leader who was called Paul Charm and it was a bit like Dead Poets Society because it was back in the day where you could like smoke in the in the lesson with your tutor, like it was very relaxed and it was very, yeah, it was informal and there was the the theory of people like people like themselves and so it taught me kind of, if you're struggling to understand something or find your way like I was, you just watch other people and you kind of copy what they do until you get it right. So I I suppose they were the two biggest lessons. When
1: I went to Central St Martins, I found that there was I was like the poorest kid on my course like I didn't have a laptop and everyone did and it, I it was the first time I really thought about a class divide at university and you said that your household was really politicized but you also had this PPE was there a divide either through socioeconomic background or through political leanings that you found while well on your degree and how has that informed the rest of your career in terms of what you've done in politics
0: Well, I think there wasn't a political divide at university and that the student body was a diverse mixture of people. I suppose in my career, I've worked with lots of different people and I've worked for lots of different places with various political connections. And I have always found that quite fascinating as a... I mean, that's something we share in common, isn't it? Like, we're kind of... We're very, very interested in politics. To be discussed. To be discussed. But, (laughs) It's more when you said that you...
1: When you don't know what to do, you sit and watch people. Mm. But what I found is when you go into a social structure like a university or a new company or a new institution... There seems to be people who just know what to do.
0: Yeah, it's a shorthand.
1: They just know and you don't know. And I was reading this amazing book the other day, Black Girl, No Magic, if anyone's read that book. And um, she's a young black writer who went to private school and she basically provides a glossary of all the things that she learned while being there. And I guess what I'm trying to ask is how did you learn what the world of journalism, which is very white and middle class Mm. and typically male. How did you learn the codes and what are some of the codes that you think um, made your career propel forward?
0: I spent a bit of my time copying. So I spent a bit of my time changing my voice or trying to be a bit more like the leader that I was working for or the agenda. And I remember thinking, oh, it's chameleonic, it's one of my superpowers, that's what I do. And then relatively recently, I'd say maybe six or seven years ago, I sort of thought, why am I doing that? That's really quite strange. Like, why am I not being in my my true, like, who I am in these environments? And so I sort of pivoted away from that, which is probably linked to the degree of imposter syndrome you're, you're referencing, Um and seeing my difference as my strength. So if I'm a woman in an all-male environment, I bring something to that conversation that they don't know and that they don't understand. Or if I'm the youngest one in the room, although I don't, I'm not that young anymore, but I often have been the youngest one in a, in a senior, around a senior table, that I think sometimes we forget they, they're looking to us for answers, and sometimes it can feel intimidating. But actually, the power is in the difference, and you hold that power because you're not them. And I found that to be quite an awakening at the midpoint of my career. How did you get your first ever job? I worked a lot from like a young age, you know double glazing sales or whatever i did a load of stuff but my first proper job related to my career was um a guy called eric musgrave who was the editor of draper's record which is a fashion trade press i did an internship there and when my internship finished he said there's a job going at the title over the road called retail week and i thought well i'll apply for it as junior reporter and the patch was diy So, like, literally home base. Literally, my beat was Robert Gaius and, like, B&Q and q and home base, And I loved it. I would just... I'd I'd started there. I would write about these companies. I was a, a very young reporter. I think I was probably, like, 25. And my only ambition was to see my name in print once. And I got that at a really young age. I got, like, it was a Woolworth story. I can't remember what it was, but it was... And I've got the cutting at home. Um, and then that was it. That was my first my first job. What was after that? Then uh, Drapers, so Fashion Reporter. Within the same publishing yeah, house. Yeah, EMAP. Then uh, a maternity cover at L-U-K online when they just started a website. Because what used to happen back in the day was the website was a new thing, but no one had cottoned on to its potential or indeed you know future shaping capacity so they'd put the youngest person on the website so I ended up um, running that ad uh, in a maternity cover how did you navigate
1: that change which is going from print to digital because one of the things I've Notice with incredible leaders is they've been very good at navigating macro level and usually innovational technology changes. Yeah. What was your approach to digital
0: that was different to print all those years ago? Well, all those years ago, it was completely in its infancy. And I was almost a guardian of the site because I was doing map cover. So I was very aware that I was kind of a caretaker rather than this was my new job. Um And I suppose it was It was transformational for the industry at that time because everyone was like, oh, this is the future, but we don't quite know why or how. Um, So we were just sort of pioneering the the digital race to the bottom, really, of like listicles and top tens and, you know, doing all that kind of light touch journalism that was sort of, you know, a new thing, I suppose. And what other companies around that time
1: were you looking at and inspired by in terms of what you brought into L.U.K.? Were you looking at BuzzFeed and Vice and other platforms like that? Yeah, probably BuzzFeed,
0: Vice. All of that was kicking off at the time, but it was only a very short tenure. I was was there for about six months. And then I got a call from the Sunday Times to go and work uh, for Style Magazine. And that was really the most pivotal turning point. Let's talk about that then. Yeah.
1: Sunday Times, huge. Legendary. Yes. yes. And not only was your name in print, but you also had your photo right there. Yes. Tell us about your first role at Sunday Times. So my
0: first role at the Sunday Times was the wardrobe mistress, which is where you have to you had to dress up and have your photo taken in the clothes. Which at the time I sort of thought was fun. And now I look back, I thought I think it's I don't know. Cringe. A bit cringe and the editor would like look at my pictures be like, yeah, you look good in that. No, you don't. look You had to be quite resilient, I suppose, to go through the editing process of your own body image and then putting that in a newspaper for the world, you know, for everyone to look at, I suppose. I haven't gone too deep on it, but it's quite an interesting process. And then um, I was also the editor of A.A. Uh, Gill's food column, who's the eminent best food Well, one of the best writers in the world, actually. Um, And that was a huge learning curve. So, yeah, that was was the biggest... And still, to this day, one of the best places I've ever worked. Let's just talk about that wardrobe
1: mistress first, which is... It's very different being a woman in industry where you are behind words or behind, you know, in a walled garden of a company versus being very public and very visible mm. how did that make you feel in terms of your career from when nobody not nobody but I'm sure people knew your name but all of a sudden now they are seeing your face every week because I think one of the challenges of women in the workplace is the demand to be constantly visible mm. and what I mean by that is you know if there's an event or if there's some d i policy they always like push the women make sure you look good you know if you're a woman of color especially they want you to do all of this extra work and to me that visibility is a form of additional labor because instead of just writing your copy and filing it you're now thinking about your appearance I'm sure you were working out more or what you eat more or all of these things that come on top of being a woman at yeah. work but not only are you're a woman at work you are now out to the public what was that like for you?
0: I mean, it's, it's double-edged really because I suppose there is an expectation for women to be on stage and there is an expectation for women to, well, a societal expectation, I suppose, and, and a burden we put on ourselves to mm. look a certain way or look our best or um, be groomed in certain settings. Um, but on the flip side, I really enjoyed the visibility I really enjoy, you know, I I really enjoyed being out for, I remember being out for a fry-up with a boyfriend and someone came over and was like, oh my God, are you the wardrobe mistress? I was like, yes. It was so, I, I just loved it. And I loved seeing people read it on the train and, you know, like peek over and be like, that's because it was not fame. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't uncomfortable. It was, it was always, it was actually always a really a positive experience. Well, it
1: was kind of pre-influencer yeah, so really era being the yeah, hype. Yeah, it really was. And because, no trolls and yeah. then pre-all of that kind of stuff, so. Because there's a quote in one of Bret Easton Ellis' novels, Glamorama, that I always think about. <laughs> I read it when I was 16 and it was, the better you look, the more you see. And like Mm. I love that double entendre bit, but the better you look, the more you see. Visibility does get you invited to things. It get you know. It can help you make more money. It's been proven in many Harvard Business Review studies. The more groomed you are, the more money you make. But then I think like, what is the cost of that? And you said it was a double-edged sword. Like, what is that cost of visibility? And how do we find the right balance? Because. What some people might not know about you unless they follow you on Instagram is you've got an allotment, you're yeah. very much in a tracksuit. Yeah. Like you live in Brighton, so you don't even live in London. Yeah. And you're living this kind of double Dual life. life. Yeah. So have
0: you done that to find this balance that I'm asking? So my lifestyle is a result of circumstance. So I'm a mother to a, a young girl and... An I'm, amazing child. Amazing. I'm a solo mum, so... She's an incredible child. And so when I had my daughter, I moved home to be closer to my family and I just stayed there. So I could, we could come back to London and I live in London a few nights a week so I can meet. But my family is, I sound like a Kardashian, my family is everything, but like it really is. And I, you know, my sister and my mom and we all live, it's like EastEnders, you know, we all live like a road away. And Uh, that's my that's what's important to me you know my real value system is anchored there and it's in my allotment is about it's just magic it's like having a place to go and do very small really important things that are very um slow you know like we talked about before I'm really drawn to environments of pace and pressure naturally and so i try and challenge myself by you know growing a seed you know for six months and then picking it and be like oh my god that's it's just it blows my mind you know the simplicity of it but the patience that it takes and so it is about balance it's also a double edged short again because it's the logistically you know logistically it can be challenging but the payoff is worth it when I get to kind of go there be with my family be at home slow down for the you know, the weekend or whatever. I really
1: admire it because it's almost a way of mitigating potential burnout because you've always got this place to return to, which is just that seed and that mm. earth and you know, being with family and being near the sea. Did you make the decision to move to Brighton while you were at Sunday Times or at Evening Standard?
0: Tell me about that timeline. It was after, I mean, it was a result of, the, of my circumstance and I kind of, I had to be, I had to have a network and I didn't have a kind of really close-knit support network when I had a young baby. So I was like, you know, I went home to my family. I had burnt out. I burnt out in the early years of, the, of my job at The Evening Standard. I had like a really tricky four months where I pushed myself really, really hard. And um, I started to feel really burnt out. And I remember that being quite a challenging time and thinking, right, I've got to watch this because I will push myself, you know, I will, I will challenge myself to do more, be better, produce the best, make it the coolest, make everyone excited by it, you know. And I, I remember thinking at that time, I need to put some safeguards and checks in to make sure that I retain balance because that's what it's all about. So let's talk about Evening Standard magazine. ES was amazing, when did you get the call about that role? I was at Vogue at the time. I've been there for a year, and I got the call um, uh, that they were looking for a new editor. And so I interviewed and got the job. Why do you think you got the job? I honestly don't know. I think it was. I think if you look at my CV, if you like on paper, you know, Elle magazine, Sunday Times. Vogue, Condé Nast. To be fair, if you work for Vogue, it's like a very good endorsement of your um, for your CV, I suppose. And so, it does increase your uh, currency. Yeah, your currency exactly. So on paper, I think it was. You know, I could have looked. I looked like a good candidate, and then I got the job, and it was fantastic. It was just fantastic. What year was this? Ten. Oh God, and what year was it? It was two thousand fifteen. So in 2015, you're the newest editor of ES
1: magazine. What was the first thing that you did?
0: First thing I did uh, with the team, the team, the team, the team, the team, the team were and still are amazing, an incredible, creative, strategic, uh, motivated group of individuals. And we did that magazine together every week. First thing that we set about doing was redesigning the magazine. It was a great onboarding, so I had a, a few months to really look at the title and look at how I'd like to redesign it before starting on that first day. Um, so we redesigned it. Talk to me about that design process because
1: mm, you when, love that. I process. love it. Yeah. It's always so fun. Yeah. Like when I was thinking about the stack. Yeah. Um, we've got a video of this in the in the Stack TV section. But it was during the pandemic and the city was completely empty. So I was walking around the city a lot and I was looking at all the typefaces of the big banks. I was looking at the colour palette of kind of the cream and then the neon colours. Because, you know, the road markings on the floor when they're about to dig up the floor and they spray like neon pink and neon Mm. green. That's literally where I got the inspiration from for the stack. So I love how we absorb London because this is a London magazine. Like, how did you bring the city of London into the design and how were you thinking about how you wanted to redesign the
0: magazine? I was thinking about London at every for, for five years. All I thought about was this city and the people that live in it. And having grown up here, I was really, like, absolutely motivated that I wanted as many people to see themselves reflected in those pages and I was absolutely inspired by the fact it was free and that and democratic and democratic and anyone could access it. I was also in love with the fact that it came out on a Friday. So, you know, like just as you're starting your weekend, you get this bit of gold that can push you with optimism and inspiration into experiencing like, look at this city. And like that that was my motivation and so when I was looking at the design, I wanted to be really respectful to the legacy of the paper, the Evening Standard, you know, more than 100 years old, while kind of just giving it a refresh. You know, I didn't go too deep into, I didn't want to kind of transform it because I didn't want to move it too far away from its roots. But to your point about typeface and I mean, that is one of the most enjoyable processes. Tell me
1: some of your favourite stories that you worked on there in terms of how you felt like the city could be
0: reflected in the pages. One of my proudest stories, I wouldn't say it was a favourite because it was, you know, very difficult, I mean, ultimately difficult time for the city, but it was after the bombings and the terrorist attacks in London. And we did the London United campaign and we worked with a series of artists across the city to create a collector's edition of covers And it was artists that, you know, previously probably wouldn't work with a magazine, you know, big names, but who were moved and inspired to contribute because they wanted to be part of um, recognising the spirit of London at that time and galvanising people to band together and get through it as a city. Um, So that was a very proud moment for me and the team and a very powerful time I really enjoyed the Sadiq cover that we did and I commissioned Jürgen Teller to shoot it and I never forget turned like Sadiq was on this on the roof of um City Hall and Jürgen turned up in his I you know trademark shorts with a you know a phone and just did the really the quickest shoot you've ever seen and Sadiq was like oh that was quick um And then we ran the cover and it was a fantastic cover and a really great interview. Um, So I really really enjoyed the convening power of that title. Everyone knew it. Everyone had goodwill towards it and everyone wanted to be part of the story. This
1: was actually going to be my next question in terms of that convening power because being an editor is a very powerful position in itself, an editor-in-chief, but also... Being able to pick up the phone to people and get them to do things for you, like getting Jurgen Teller to take that picture or getting Tracy I mean, to d- contribute. What are some of the strategies or tips that you can share in how to get somebody to do something for you or how to get a big name that you might feel is out of reach?
0: I think the first step is making sure the product is compelling. So, whatever you want them to take part in, it's irrefutable. Like, you can't say no because you know that it has gravitas or power or reach or it stands for something you believe in um i think the second kind of tip is surrounding yourself with the best people you possibly can it was very rare for me to make the call so it's very rare that i would ring the artist and say can you do this a very like a couple of times it would be my team and i would say let's ask this person and then they would go and do it and that's because they were amazing. They were negotiators and they felt empowered to do it, but also they were like, oh, the boss wants it, right? So you push and push to get it. And so they're the two, just surround yourself with really good people and create an amazing product that people want to be part of. Um, I suppose they're the two key drivers or levers, if you like. How did you develop your leadership style at ES? Because you had a team of about 30, wasn't it? Yeah, about 30. You have to ask them. They're probably all still, you know reeling <laughs> um no joking i think they um i think it was just one it was an informal leadership style it was one of a uh, camaraderie it was i hope to make everyone feel included and that they had equity in what we were creating together how do you think you get people to do their best work
1: because again when i've watched people working for you It's like they want to do their best work, not like you're forcing them to. What do you think that is?
0: It's really hard to say. I think it's back to that point of you lead with a really fine balance of respecting the person you're leading, but helping them go on the journey with you to understand why it's important they deliver what they've been tasked with. It sounds very simple, but it's like a constant balance. And it's constant communication. And constant as well. communication and trying to always think about the best work. Because that's the only thing really that that's my main driver. It's the only driver. thing we care about. That's that it's, only like, thing. it's not personal. We just want everybody to do their absolute yeah, best. Just work. the best, the best work. Like make the best magazine or create the best thing that we can possibly create together. And I hope that's motivating for people that I lead. What do you do when somebody's going off track or somebody's
1: not doing their best work? I think that we're all, you know, cognizant of the fact that we are only human right now. And with so many things going on in the world over the last few years, there might be reasons why people are not doing their best work. And how do you step in?
0: I think it's, again, about balance. Like You, you have to recognise that people are human and not everyone's going to be operating at their highest level all of the time. And there will be peaks and troughs in output, but the troughs lead to better peaks and you see people as human beings at the end of the day. They're not worker ants. They're, you know They're human beings. So
1: you left ES in 2020. And that was, but you left without a particularly a particular position to go into, which is yeah. actually quite scary. Most people leave a job, particularly one that is that prominent and visible, in order to go to a new job. Right. Talk about that leap of faith that you took and what you were looking for when you left.
0: So I left ES Magazine, um, as you say, and I, I didn't have a, a job to go to, but I just had a feeling it would be okay. How do you find that faith though? That's terrifying. I think when you've cleaned houses or when you've done double glazing sales or when you've worked in the pub or when you, you know, and you're you're driven to, to, survival is a strong word, but I sort of just knew it would be like I would find a way. And also I'm lucky, you know, I've got my family, I've got my mum and my sister and, you know, so I always feel that I'm in a lucky, privileged position. If the worst came to the worst, I'd have a roof over my head. I'd move home with my mum or I'd move in with my sister. or I had that, you know, the, the, the com- combination of feeling looked after and feeling like someone will look after me. A lot of intuition and faith and belief. Yeah, a lot of belief and some self-belief. And, yeah, it was one of the best. It was just another one of a really good decision, a really good kind of life decision because we got to work with you. And Sharmadie was the first person to call me after I left. And she was like, have you left a magazine? I was like, yeah. She's like, we're going for lunch. So we went for lunch, didn't we? What did I say? You said, I've got this idea. I've got this idea. And we were sat at Scott's in Mayfair because we're keeping the standards high. Elite. And um, so we went and we had this lunch. She said, I've got this idea. and we, And it became the stack. And that was the... That was a very profound moment for me because it was the first time in that setting where of course there were doubts, but you had got in touch and I thought, okay, someone does all the work with me. That's good.
1: And it was just little old me. I was actually scared to call you because
0: I thought you'd be like, as in. No. And that's the irony, right? Because I would look at you in your career and we didn't really know each other. We were in each other's orbit and I would look at Shah and I think, oh my God, she is phenomenal. Like... She's the coolest. She's so connected. She's galvanizing people. I'm thinking people. this about you as well.
1: I know. And I reached out to Laura because I was like, I've got this idea for a women's newspaper. It's just a thought experiment. What do you think? And that's how we started working together. So you knew that the work would come eventually. And um. I think if anyone has left their job and gone to a free- become a freelancer or become a consultant, it, it, it can be quite terrifying, but the work does eventually come if you keep putting
0: yourself out there, right? Yeah, I think it, it was, you know, my story is not going to be the same for everyone. But having a a portfolio behind me of different different titles that people recognise and, and having a network, you know, to your point of building this network, you know, it's a support system. And so that definitely helped. Before we move on to
1: Selfridge's, a funny thing was when we were on Zoom um, talking about the stack, and I said, "There's a picture behind you. I used to have a picture like that. Do you remember the Alia <laughs> picture?" And you said, "I got it from you." Yeah. I was like, "What?" You were like ten years ago. You were doing a house sale, and I took it.
0: I came. I went to Charmaine's house because again, I was like a fan, and I saw on social media. It's probably Facebook at the time. Um, I'm selling some stuff in my house so I went round I got like your sideboard I got your picture I got a rug and I had it all for years in my house and it was still it was a lot li- it's a liar wasn't yeah. it doing the jump is it John Paul Goode I think yes yeah,
1: John Paul Goode poster that we did for a shoot it's really funny because I'm a big believer in those little u- like spiritual universe nudges that you were literally like I was in your presence for 10 years before we ever worked together and I'm a big believer in everything at the right time for the right reason and whenever you are terrified or you think that have I made the wrong decision I always think that sometimes the universe makes the decisions for you so if you didn't get that degree you had a better one if you didn't get that job there's something else around the corner yeah so you took a massive leap of faith by leaving ES and I think a lot of the industry was quite shocked.
0: Like, what a cushy role. You were doing your best work. You left on a high. Well, that was the really important to me. Is I, I want, wanted to leave on a high. And, yeah, so that was a real motivation. And then I had a couple of consultancy product, projects as well. And then the call came. So let's talk about Selfridges. Yeah, well, Selfridges was one of my clients. I was consulting for them. Uh, on some pieces of print that they were doing. And yeah, they gave me a ring and said, oh, this role's come up, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely, jumped at the chance. You've been in media your whole life. Yeah, and now you're in retail.
1: Well, actually, you did retail weeks. Maybe it's full circle. Well,
0: that's it. I'm like, they sell bits of DIY. (laughs) so um, But yeah, it's kind of full circle. And actually, it's amazing how the serendipity of that journey you know, I'll be in meetings now and because of my time writing for Trade Press, I can read a balance sheet and I can understand a PL and l And because I used to write about performance and financial performance because it was a trade a trade publication. And at the same time, I, I am that talking to your point about the lingo and being in spaces and the glossary of, of the woman who wrote that book, which sounds brilliant. I kind of knew a lot of that. So it, it does feel full circle. Um, and to your point about the transition from media to retail, they are obviously different industries, but they have a fundamental shared mission, which is to engage an audience. And that's always been my motivation. So throughout anything I've done, I want to speak like we were talking about Londoners or I want to speak to the audience and I want to make them feel like they need to be part of what we're creating as a team. And so that's the synergy for me. And I, I was just reflecting on, um, there's a chef called Jackson Boxer who's just opened a brilliant restaurant with us on the second floor. If you fancy we lunch. We should all go. Yeah, come in and have some lunch. And we interviewed him for a magazine that we created. And one of his quotes was, I paraphrase, but I'm not interested in shopping and things, but I'm interested in people and behavior. I like the space of a shop you know, the convening space, the way people interact and can be inspired, the crisscrossing of the escalators, the architecture, um, all of that means something to me and all of that is
1: inspiring. I totally can relate because one of the things I always said about my nail salon is of course I love nails, I love, you know, getting my nails done and doing beauty, but what I really loved was that we created a playground and when people came in, I would just see what they were doing, see what they were chatting about. It was like the biggest focus group of a decade for me because every single day I had at least 50 women who were talking about all their problems and fun and anxiety and what they were doing and their ambitions. And yeah. really, it's that thing, it's that people and behaviors over like, you know, shopping and things. And I think both of us have that balance of trying to be. Degrowth, anti-consumerist, a bit slow living, but also loving nice things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: It's the balance, right? The balance for (laughs) sure. And yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, I, I I think back to when we were doing some of the foundational work for the stack, and the bit that lit us up was the psychographic work. So the user personas and Shah was amazing at this. You know, she's a progenitor of this of this kind of approach which is like how you segment an audience and who you speak to and, and how your uh, top-tier audience will cascade to a different audience and the power of, it's 100, what was that? True fans. 102 fans and all of that thinking, that's what gets me going is, is the people who are receiving the information that you create. So let's talk about you've just
1: started the role. It's a big job. It's a, it's a global brand.
0: What were some of the first things you did to get to know the business better? I just listened. that was one of the biggest lessons that I was taught. Well, two, one is no one's bigger than the brand. That was Tiffany Dark, my old editor at Sunday Times, who said that when I was wardrobe mistress. She's like, you know, you're in this magazine and you're being a face, but no one's bigger than the brand. And the second is that listen for as long as possible um, because... You only get that opportunity once to start something new and watching and listening and taking your time because I think as motivated women, you know, we often approach situations with the goal in sight, you know, like you know where you want to get to. So you're you're just, these this journey is kind of in the way, right? You, you know you want to get to the end and this bit's a bit like, kind of get out of the way, I need to get here. But actually the listening and the learning part and being humble being like you know actually uh, can you help me understand this or can you can you help can you explain to me why um that part of the journey has been really important that's the first thing I, just, I did it's really interesting because exactly what you've said that
1: knowing the end result is something that I feel I've always had since I was like a little girl and many of the women in this room which is You've got a vision in your head of where you want to be. And sometimes it might be quite concrete, like I want to achieve X by age 30 or, you know, I want to have gotten this amount of money. Whereas actually thinking about the feeling of that is quite a different energy. And what I'm learning now, because we're the same age, right, is being okay with not knowing what the end result might be and actually using the journey as exploratory time. So this is like a completely brand new experience for me. I've always been like, right, I want to do this and let me work backwards. But actually, it's like writing a book, knowing what you want to write versus doing the research to explore, to think about what you want to write. Do you think this is a new part of your career, um,
0: like where you're at in your life cycle right now? It's a good question. And I I think about where we started the interview. and. And talking about that one goal, which was to have my name in print once, that's the only ambition I've ever had. And you achieved it
1: so young. And
0: that was it. And then it's like, now And I've never, ever set another. I I mean, you are incredible at your planning, right?
1: I overplanned, but I was watching The Queen's Gambit with my son and she says to the junior chess champion, he's like, I'm going to be world champion by the time I'm 16. And then she went, and then what? And he said, I don't understand. And she's like, but then at 16, what are you going to do after yeah, that? And he, and he starts having a panic attack, like basically yeah, being yeah. like, but I don't understand. Yeah. And I think I am good at planning, but sometimes I over plan and I'm really enjoying being an exploratory vibe right now.
0: I've known what makes me feel good and what makes me enjoy my life and work is a huge part of that. And I've known what, motivates me my value system and the things that inspire me but I haven't had by x I want to do x for a really long time and each each part of the career journey has led to something else to your point you know it's like you started and worked backwards but actually the journey is as valuable as the destination as they say so before I ask
1: my final questions, we are going to have a couple of questions from the audience, if you can prepare for some. I want to just go to the slight practicality of what it's like being in such a large environment. And some might say a corporate environment, despite the fact that you have this incredible creative role and it's a cool, it's a, it's a cool shop. It's a big shop. That's really cool. How do you navigate that corporate environment, having come from more freewheeling, Informal leadership style.
0: I think adaptability is really important. And as a as an individual, I'm quite left and right-brained, depending on the environment or the situation. And I think there's, I mean, I would say this, but it's quite a powerful discipline to be able to think creatively about corporate environments and corporate function. You know, to have that combination of a creative mind who can who who can also you know apply creative thinking to um you know the more traditional structures and the corporate business structures is is quite an interesting dynamic so i suppose adaptability is really important and then finally let's talk about your project that is now
1: your first your first creative vision which is just gone into salvages now yes how have you approached it because it's such a huge space and you've done so many things so you've got the magazine the signage things like the vogue shop things like jackson vox's restaurant it's a it's a megalith how have you approached it because it's only been nine months when you said last night i've been in this role for nine months i was like wow that's crazy." What have you been doing over the past nine months and talk through some of the processes that you've created in order to get to the Selfridges that we see today, which you all must go and take a look at, by the way. Yeah,
0: please, please go and look. We've The Yellow Pages is a celebration of everything cultural and style for, for September, essentially. So Selfridges is a house of culture and style. And we were looking at how we can create this ultimate experience for the customer of connectivity. So from when you arrive and you look in the windows to going into store and shopping what you see in the windows to then going to have an experience in our lounge. We wanted to create something that felt holistic and um, really amplified the brand. And the team the team are there they're amazing and they're already working on so many elements of the project um so all i've done is conduct to a degree but it's a fantastic team and um i hope i hope you like it go go and check it out thank you so much laura thank Thank you. you
1: executive realness is brought to you by the stack world a media and community platform where you can learn from powerful women join the stack world today and build your new peer network with thousands of members who are all looking to grow themselves personally and professionally download the stack world app now on ios or android you'll find the links in the show notes